You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. You are likely still catching your breath after discovering the life decisions that have already been made by the characters in Jean Thompson's newest collection of short stories when more startling and unsettling decisions happen on top of them. Even when we'd rather believe they are different than us, these sometimes quietly desperate women and the people connected to them show us their warts and their scars to the illumination of the life we all share. Thompson's book, Throw Like a Girl, has been praised by David Sedaris. Kirkus Reviews called her America's Alice Monroe. Her stories have been anthologized in the Best American Short Stories and Pushcart Prize. Beyond Throw Like a Girl, Jean Thompson is the author of the short story collection Who Do You Love, a 1999 National Book Award finalist for fiction, as well as two other books of stories and four novels. She's joining us on the phone from her home in Illinois. Welcome, Jean Thompson. Thank you, Catherine. Nice to be with you. Thanks for, thanks for talking to us. Have some of the choices these characters have made um, flying to Thailand, uh, heading off to Alaska uh, to rid <laughs> oneself of an affair, enlisting in the army. H- have some of these choices surprised you as their author? Well, I would put it this way. Uh, in in a, at least a couple of those uh, you know, choices or stories, the story needed an event. The story needed some action. The story needed to... to Get out of town, you know, basically. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there were almost technical considerations. In, in the story you're referring to about the young woman who joins the army, uh, which is called It Would Not Make Me Tremble to See 10,000 Fall, uh, that, that course of action was kind of, did not surprise me. That was mm. kind of predetermined in my telling the story. Wow. So, uh, so I suppose one answer would be you get to a point in the story where something needs to happen, and you know maybe that's when you get out the globe or something and, <laughs> and send people out of town. Wow, it's so interesting to hear you talk about um, it would not make me, it would not make me tremble because it it I think if I can speak for a larger um, group of readers, which maybe I can and maybe I can't, it really um, it, it takes you aback. Uh, in that story. But um, there's a lot of themes, obviously, that tie the collection together um, quite well and that overlap, uh, that come and go, um, you know, several of which may appear in one story. Uh, We've got adultery, we've got parent-child relationships, religion, um, these kind of sometimes dangerous decisions that are going on. Yeah, we have a lot of bad behavior. I'm I'm wondering how purposeful the themes are, and how much how much you know you're setting out to okay I'm going to take on adultery and I'm just looking at my notes it appears in at least four of the stories, um, and how much is gosh okay I've written um, a pile of stories here and oh look at what I've been writing about. Well, let's see. I'm not sure there's that many adultery stories. I think there's misbehavior. You know, <laughs> I think that's a better a better way for it. But you know, um, some of that, I suppose. I mean, the stories weren't written necessarily as a part of a collection. You know, to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I did not set out to to write most of them as part of a body of work. 
uh, the process is a little bit more organic. Let's write this story, that story. Uh, so I suppose the themes you have with you arise from who you are, you know, as a writer, you know, and, and as a, a, a human being living your life. Uh, and, you know, so, so I, I, I'd like to think that's what gives the, the collection uh, a little bit of its, its I don't know about seamless feel, but that they all belong together and that they were all written by the same person. Absolutely, absolutely. And it would seem that um, particularly it it has a bit of a chronological feel. Some of the youngest um, protagonists uh, are way way up front. We've got the brat, the high school outcast that we start off with, and the runaway um, in the five senses who has gone off with um, a boyfriend that... (laughs) is well beyond anything that a parent might disapprove of. He is oh, a he's, hard he's criminal. He's yeah, oh yeah, he's, he's about the worst person in the book, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm all gearing up to it. Does that chronology, in a sense, you know, starting with the youngest, and then I guess ending with the title story, Throw Like a Girl, where we see a real span of time. Sure. Um, these, these women who were friends in college and, and then, you know, the friendship ending in, in one sure. of their deaths. Yeah. No, um, that was purposeful. That was mm-hmm. purposeful. When I had the, the stories assembled um, and knew that they would be a collection, I did take some care to arrange them. And I wanted to go roughly from youth to age. I mean, I, I didn't want to be slavish about it. But, yes, I did want to start with younger characters. Um, and progress into older ones. And I knew I wanted the title story to be the end story because it is the title story. And also, it's a it's a lengthy story. I think it's the longest story in the book. And it does, as you say, cover all of this time uh, about a, a kind of a, a charged friendship between two women, uh, you know, kind of a difficult friendship. And, uh, you know, although they're not the oldest characters in the story, in, in, the, in the book, uh, I thought that was appropriate to end with them. Mm. They were a good closing note. But, oh no, I did go through and said, okay, who's, who's young here, who's older? But, but I did not want that to be, you know, a kind of a slavish uh, order. And I also tried to do things so that not, not every story that was, I mean, there's, there are a couple stories that are pretty bleak in there, and I didn't want them to, uh, to follow each other. I wanted to vary the tone a little bit. Mm. Uh, and even, you know, if you get down to the nuts and bolts, I didn't want, uh, oh, I have a number of stories with the as a, as a, a first word and, and didn't want to put those all in a clump. So those are all my editorial secrets hmm. about the collection. Well, just looking at one of the themes um, that comes up, religion, um, which seems um, a peripheral but growing preoccupation in some of the lives of the protagonists, uh, I I want you to to invite you to read a passage from the story entitled A Normal Life. Oh, sure. Um, And... um, in, in, which is just one of the one of the stories where it appears, and in in this uh, story we have a middle aged couple who have left their marriages and married each other, and there's lots of doubt and second guessing going on, and uh, the husband Chad has um, set off on this endeavor this new enterprise to start, of all things, a radio station of his own. Um, but first he is embroiled in another radio station where the formatting has just changged right. it. Yes, I'll read you that passage. Great. His name is Chad. 
The station Chad worked for was taken over by one of the big radio networks, and the format changed to religious programming and angry politics. Chad stayed on. Jobs didn't grow on trees at his age, as did the control room staff and Liz, the receptionist and bookkeeper. The new shows were rebroadcast from remote studios and intruded only as aggrieved voices buzzing from the building speakers. But other things were different. A new station manager was installed. The kid, Chad called him, though not to his face. The kid was a real go-getter. He liked shaking hands. He hummed along with commercial ditties. He instituted weekly staff meetings where coffee and violently sugared pastries were served. Who's come up with the next great idea for performance enhancement, he'd ask, and when nobody had any, he read from the newest round of corporate directives, which always involved doing more work in the same amount of time. Chad ate a chocolate donut. He was never able to resist the donuts and felt his nerves twitch and jangle. So, Chad, the kid said, turning to him with practice managerial enthusiasm, how are the ad quotas coming along? Like gangbusters, Chad said. He had the lingo down by now. Glad to hear it. How about you work up a few quarterly projections and give me a shout? Chad reached for another donut. Roger Wilco. Sometimes he got through an entire meeting speaking only gibberish. The kid said that would be super. Chad filled his mouth with more donut and gave a thumbs-up sign. The kid's eyes fixed on something remote and unseen as his brain went through a sequence of calculator functions. You'd think that people like the kid working for a corporation representing such stalwart values might be especially religious or supernut patriots or both, but no, his real faith was money. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the stories that actually has what I consider a happy ending. <laughs> indeed it does. Indeed it yeah, does. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's not all bleak in, in Thompson land. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Lots of humor. Lots of humor here. Lots of poignant uh, um, scenes going on. Um, and some fabulous, stunningly s- singular lines. Um, uh, in that same story... Um, Chad's wife at one point, again, you know, with this sort of oddly, um, the, re- the religion is, is oddly peripheral, as I've said, but still somehow um, not. She, she says at one point, she was, or, or of her, the narrator says, she was not at all religious, but she did believe in guilt. Yes, right. Oh, that's America for you. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and in, in the passage I just read, I mean, religion has become a corporate tool. You know, religion is what goes through the corporate network and and gets market shares. So, you know, there's, a, I think, a, a jaundiced view of, of uh, kind of organized religion. And uh, I, I would hope in that story uh, a, a very kind of private spirituality, you know. Mm. So. Hmm. Well, um, I'll, I'll continue to um, read back to you some of my favorite um, lines <laughs> as we go along here. Um, it, there's another story entitled Hunger, interesting and painful tale, and it touches on a theme, another theme, I guess we could say, how to make a life worth living and, and who is in control of that, I guess, seems to be a question for, for many of your characters well, this is a story of um, uh, three family members, a brother and sister and their older aunt, who lived together not necessarily happily. I mean, there's been a, a tragedy in the past involving the brother and sister's mother. Uh, and, you know, these are three people living in the same house, but 
none of them can sleep. They all have simultaneous insomnia. So that was that was kind of interesting to me. And they're all terribly flawed in some way. And trying to come to terms with uh, you know the uh, the cards that have been dealt them, I guess. So uh, hmm. would you like me to read from that? That would be fabulous. Yeah. I think this is an interesting transition because it, it again touches a bit on 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 religion or um, uh, yeah. virtue. <laughs> yeah, uh, virtue. Yeah, maybe uh, the the aunt's name is Patsy, and then the 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 young man who is a brother. He's about uh, nineteen years old. Uh, his name is Jack. So you begin with Patsy. Uh, let's see. Patsy wishes she had more to contribute than Leslie and Jack, who never really do anything worth repeating or even complaining about except in static and uninteresting ways, compared to Diamond's stories of hernias and diabetes and asthmatic babies and trips to the emergency room and domestic disturbances and the inadequacies of health insurance and landlords and law enforcement personnel. Patsy feels as if she has no right to her own unhappiness, as if she's never lived at all. And that's ridiculous because of everything she's been through with Angela. It's a tragedy, and if someone hadn't experienced it themselves, you couldn't hope to describe it and do it justice. True enough, but everything's already happened, hasn't it? And there's no longer any urgency in it. It's like a war fought a long time ago that everybody's forgotten, and that's so unfair. Our Lord holds us all in the palm of his hand, says Diamond, finishing her account of large and small misfortune, indignities, setbacks, taking comfort in the profession of faith. And Patsy hurries to agree. But does she believe it? So much of life is unfairness. God could fix it in an instant if he wanted. A wave of his enormous God-sized hand, and evil and sickness and death would be banished. God is supposed to love us, but sometimes it seems like he's just not paying enough attention. Patsy takes out a new sheet of paper. Dear Angela, the wine makes her writing spiral out and out, uphill and downhill. Are you glad you went crazy? I don't mean you did it on purpose, because I don't think people can choose to be that way. And even if they could, if you laid it all out for them, the parts about hospitals, and not looking very attractive after a while, they'd say no. That's because they aren't crazy. But say once you are good and crazy, you might find some advantages to it, like you don't care what anybody else thinks. And say you felt a thing or didn't feel like a thing. Say you feel like you're a scream walking around on two legs. Patsy stops because this is foolishness. She's a fool. She can't even drink enough to sneak up on crazy. Her body is a clock that says late, late, late. And it is the outrageous truth that your whole life can turn out wrong, sad, wasted, and no one else will think twice about it. It sucks, Jack tells himself, but he can't get cable out in the garage. There's some way to hook it up without the cable people knowing, but he isn't sure what that is. It's not worth the trouble because he won't be living here very much longer. He's on the brink of something new. His life, his real life, is about to start. He's positive. Tomorrow or the day after or the day after that, anyway, not long. He felt like this when he was getting ready for the Navy, but that was only a practice drive, a test run, and now he's ready for the real, the serious, kick-ass version. Leave his loser self behind and step up to the plate. Loser is a little harsh. Non-player is more accurate. Never got his head in the game, but that's about to change big time. He's going to surprise a few people. Nobody who knows him would think he's ambitious, but he is, in a secret identity sort of way, like Spider-Man. He wants people to say, you're kidding, the same guy we went to school with? 
the way Jack figures it, everybody starts out not famous, and his odds are exactly the same as everybody else's. Mm. <laughs> the end of that passage. Mm. That's not one of the happy stories, particularly. Okay. Well, that's a kind of catharsis. You are listening to to Jean Thompson talk about her collection of stories, Throw Like a Girl. Um, no, it's not one of the happy stories. No. But um, again, you know, just lines you catch on over and over again. Um, she can't even drink enough to sneak up on crazy. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Well, I like them too. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and and I'll, I'll introduce another story by way of uh, a favorite line. Uh, Olivia from the story Holy, Holy Week. Week. Yeah. She should have married Jesus. All the good men were already taken. <laughs> she's, she's a very non-religious character. She's she's kind of beyond irreverent. She just doesn't get it. You know? so, yeah, well, one, you know. I'm kind of interested in looking at Olivia from that story, Holy Week, um, mm-hmm. and, and we can talk more about it, and, and Patsy, the character that you sure. just um, read of. And looking at them together, they're both raising children under very different different circumstances, of course, but they both have this kind of life-takes-you-over attitude. And I'm wondering um, where that mindset begins. Fatalism? <laughs> yes. <laughs> where, mm-hmm. where, does that, where does that come from? Uh, you know, uh, that's a good question. I'm not, I, I think it probably, I need to be psychoanalyzed, you know, before I can give you a good answer. I, I guess that's what I believe, that there's, there's only uh, so much agency you have on your own. Uh, you know that that you do what you can, but uh, I guess I do believe in in you know sometimes you get hit by a big anvil coming out of the sky. You know? mm. uh, some sometimes there are forces you can't control, and you have to make the you know the best with the hand you're dealt. Mm. You know, which which I don't think is actually fatalistic or despairing. I think it's more realistic. Than, mm. Well, Olivia says uh, of children, they hadn't yet learned that what you became in life didn't have much to do with intention. What kind of what, what kind of importance does that attitude um, have, or where that comes from, have for these for these children? Oh, for the children. Well, I I don't know. I I like to think that particular attitude is is. Uh, you know, coming from a particular character, and mm. part of the reason that she feels that way is her own syndrome, uh, part of which is alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, that she's she's in a sense, I think, romanticizing failure. You know, as as one does. Uh, uh, but uh, oh, for for the children, well, you know, Olivia is, is she's a mixed blessing as a mother. Uh, you know. Uh, she's a, <laughs> That's great description. Yeah, she's um, she's oh, go ahead, do whatever you want, and and but you know, there's a sense that she's not enough of a grown up, that she's not really exerting enough parental control, which is one of the things that I hope changes by the end. Mm. Uh, again, a kind of a measured happy ending for mm, that mm. story. She's going to get her act together slightly. I, uh, you know, in in the case of the other story, I. Uh, you know, Patsy, the aunt that comes along after the mother's breakdown and, oh, and a father's abandonment, uh, the reason she's not a very good child raiser is because she, 
believe, you know, refuses to look facts in the face. Uh, oh, oh, we're all so happy here, and everything is going to be just wonderful and work out all right. And you know, these children who have been traumatized by their mother's mental illness, uh, you know, don't buy it. Mm. So, I think there's a sense in which you know, you you better not lie to kids because they'll they'll pick up on that real fast. Mm. Mm. So that's, I, I guess, that's how I try and answer that question. Uh, some of your stories uh, use first person, of course. We've got the inside passage, um, the woman running from a, um, a, f- a failed affair, I guess, and yeah. th- a throw like a girl and lost. Yeah. You know, it, there's an older, wiser self um, looking back often, for example, in Lost or Throw Like a Girl, looking back and commenting on a younger incarnation. And I'm wondering, um, what what is the power there of of having that character comment at, on herself as opposed to the voice of a narrator. Yeah. Well, first person and versus third person, the choice you have uh, is just one of those tools in your writer's toolbox. Uh, and, you know, you select them when you want different effects. Uh, and, I mean, you're right. The two stories, Lost and Throw Like a Girl, are definitely retrospective. You know, very much looking back on things, and uh, you know, I, I think you, uh, you know, uh, the challenge there is trying to come up with a voice that's credible, uh, that can give you the sense of who that younger character was, but at the same time is kind of looking back and saying, oh, at the time I, uh, I had I but known, or mm. I was foolish then, uh, and I don't think that. Well, I mean, technically, it's certainly it's possible to write that in third person, but I, I think first person is is more intimate, uh, more immediate, and uh, you know, maybe a little bit in in those circumstances, a little bit more authoritative too. Mm. You know, I'm going to tell you about my life. You know, uh, so it would also the distance you get with a third person narrator. It would also seem to allow you a way to tell more than one story at a time. Would you agree? Uh, I suppose. Uh, just be, because, well, you have the different layers, the past and the present. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, we in, in that story, Lost, again, we have a woman looking back on, on her youth in the 60s, am I right? Uh, when I, she was I think it's growing probably up. dated there, the 60s, yeah, you know, something like that, late 60s. And um, it's... it's in a lighter way, sort of one one of the stories that depends a little bit then on setting, on, on that, that time setting, a, a period piece, if you will, we've got her really falling for this guy, but the times are telling her, you know, chill out. Yeah, don't, 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 you're not allowed to be serious about this. Yeah. Uh, yes, we, we, all, we all have to be, you know... Free and uh, free of entanglements, and oh, I, I certainly remember that attitude. <laughs> you know, that was oh yes, we're you know, it, it's bourgeois, you know, to mm. to settle down. Uh, it would seem to truly complicate her developing understanding of relationships, of sexuality. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it did. <laughs> you know, I think it did for a lot of people. But you were supposed to kind of work against your own instincts, you know, uh, and. And, uh, you know, be, I, I, I think actually it was a great time to be a guy. Uh, you know, oh, let's just all be perfectly noncommittal and, you know, hang out and then walk away. Uh, you know. uh, <sighs> well, some of the other, um, other stories that really depend on, on the, the outer society um, for their storyline are the time period, you know, the family Barkas. We yeah. have the aloof <laughs> 50s father and the stories that deal with war. Uh-huh. Is it an involuntary um, thing 
in the sense that those settings simply come along with the stories you're trying to tell? Well, in a sense, I mean, I think the family Barkas is uh, sort of about the last gasp of the patriarchy in a certain sense. You know, not that there aren't those guys still walking around, but the last time that you can say, I'm, I'm the father, and this is what I do, and everybody's going to jump to my tune, and, and you know, I, I, I think you probably could find that but these days. But uh, when it was just so sanctioned, when it was father knows best, uh, and, of course, the father in that story is undermined, you know, by changing times and by mm. his own children. Uh, so, you know, in a sense that I wanted to write about the, the end of that kind of attitude or of a character who's coming of age uh, and watching it decay in front of her eyes, that, you know, that kind of authoritarianism uh, you know, just isn't going to work for her anymore. Uh, now, the the stories, the war stories, if we could call them that, are, are very much creatures of, of their era, you know, very much so. Uh, although um, it would not make me tremble to see 10,000 Fall, which is uh, about a young couple, and he enlists uh, in the Army, you know, for, in, in a sense out of uh, lack of economic alternatives and in a sense out of social expectations from the, the small rural community that he lives in. Uh, you know, that's, he's, he's going off to Iraq, but the characters in that story don't have necessarily sophisticated political, you know, uh, you know, uh, rationales or anything. I mean, they're mm. pretty much taking things as they come, which which actually is my statement, I think, about how a lot of people uh, do enlist and go to war, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but, uh, you know, it's, for, for, for a, a story about a war, it's uh, only, you know, it makes political comment by, by its absence in a way. Mm. You know, the fact that nobody is really questioning this well. Well, the, I, I think there's a line that says the country had called and they had answered. Mm. So um, the other story, the Pie of the Month, was uh, completed actually just as the invasion of Iraq was happening. And so um, the story took direction from that, a lot of my outrage. Uh, you know, all, finally, all you can do is write a story you know, mm. and, and hope it echoes somewhere in the larger world. Have you ever been surprised, or my real question I think is disappointed maybe, by what a reader maybe took or didn't take from one of your stories? Well, you know, you have to abdicate responsibility, you know, for, for that, or, or you just, or, or control at least, you have to abdicate control. I mean, you, you can't, you don't always have the chance of going on a nice radio program like yours and saying this is, this is my intention and this is what I had in mind. Uh, that if the story does its job, then it's going to, con- you know, the closer I can come to communicating what I had, what I intended, what I had in mind, uh, the, you know, the more successful the story is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you can't read for people. Um, so I'm not necessarily surprised or disappointed, uh, except perhaps in myself, like, oh, you know, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And there's also that category of responses where people read something and you go, oh, wow, yeah, I'm smarter than I thought I was. You know, that, I mean, <laughs> wow, you know, that, what, what a good point you're making. You know, I, I must have intended that somehow. <laughs> so, so there's a fortuitous way in which mm. people read differently than your intention. 
Where do you go for inspiration if you're held up in a story, if, if you don't know what happens next? Oh, you know, there's no such thing as a, as a place to go besides back to your desk and keep, uh, you know, keep hammering it out and keep uh, butting your head against, uh, against it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in work process and, uh, you know, work habits and discipline. And uh, if you can't write your way through it after a few days of, of effort or of sitting down and then coming back to it, it's probably a failed story, hmm. I would say. So, hmm. no, there's no, I mean, well, I was going to say not going to the ocean, not that we have one, you know, here where I live. Yeah, you guys could do that. You could do that Indeed. You cruise. You have all kinds of, of things to do. Uh, we we have no natural wonders, you know, to to soothe us. So, uh, you know, there's nowhere to go for inspiration except back to the thing that you know gave you problems to begin with. You know, um, and and actually, that's not uh, a, a dreadful thing. That's not as as despairing as it sounds. I think that just has to do with the craft of writing, mm. you know, and and problem solving. Uh, uh, a lot of writing is problem solving. Next project? I'm going to write some more stories, I think. Uh, you know, I had so much fun with the last ones. And, and you know, I don't have any preconception of what they should be or where they should go. Uh, I'd like to try to shift the focus a little bit. I don't need to write Throw Like a Girl, too. Uh, although, you know, it's, it's very natural for me to write about, you know, female characters. I mean, it's just, you know, one, one less skin you have to put on. So... Uh, but, uh, no, writing some more stories and having a good time doing it. Well, we will very much look forward to that. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you very much for, for being with us. Thanks. It was nice to be with you. Jean Thompson's newest collection of short stories is called Throw Like a Girl. For KOSP, this is Catherine Petricelli. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.